Whenever uh, you're getting ready to go on a trip, oftentimes it's helpful to kind of get your bearings and situate yourself in preparation. You want to answer questions like, how many days am I going to be on this trip? Uh, where am I, where are my accommodations are going to be? Do I have a hotel secured or an Airbnb? What are the sort of things I'm going to be doing? So not only do I know how many pairs of clothes, but maybe do I need to bring hiking boots or a sweatshirt? What's the climate going to be like? Am I traveling overseas where I need to bring a passport? And in a similar way, when you enter into a, uh, a study of, the, of a book of the Bible, it's also helpful to get your bearings on that particular book. And we today are beginning a series on Colossians, and so we're going to be doing that, or as I was talking uh, with Brad, and Brad said yesterday we're going to be opening up, opening up a can of Colossians. So that's, that's Brad's terminology, the technical terminology for what we're doing today. And if you're a, if you're a kid in the service today, I realize you guys are in the service with us. Uh, some of the younger kids are with us during these months. Uh, we, I, I have a, a, a worksheet that you hopefully were able to get so that you can try to follow along and answer some of the questions on there that then you can talk with your mom or your dad afterwards about uh, the passage today, about the book of Colossians. And so I want to begin by just kind of doing that work of helping us uh, get acquainted with the book. So we're going to kind of fly through some fast facts about the book of Colossians. The first is that we see that the book is written by the apostle Paul. Um, Paul, when he writes the book, is also currently in prison. Uh, we're going to read through the entire book, so you'll see this. But he mentions, especially in chapter 4, being in prison on account of uh, the gospel of declaring the mystery of Christ, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He talks about uh, having fellow prisoners in chapter 4, verse 10. And then he closes the book by saying, remember my chains, remember my imprisonment. There's good reason to believe that when Paul writes Colossians, he's writing at the same time and location as when he writes the letter to the Ephesians, as well as Philippians, and then his letter to Philemon. And all of these, we see that he is in prison. And so these letters, these four letters, traditionally have been referred to as the prison epistles. Epistle is just a fancy word for a letter. And the likely location, where, where, from where Paul writes, where he is when he writes, the likely location is his imprisonment in Rome. Uh, his first imprisonment in Rome, that is, not his final one where he was eventually killed. And so this would put us... Um, in the early 60s, AD 60. Um, and this would be the same imprisonment that we read about when, when we come to the end of the book of Acts and Paul is preaching the gospel there. Um, he's writing, obviously, to the church in Colossae, so the Colossians. And Colossae was in Asia Minor. This is modern-day Turkey. And so if you think of other cities you might be familiar with, um, from, from scripture that were in this area in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, would be Ephesus, Laodicea, Sardis, Philadelphia, Smyrna, Miletus, Pergamum, Thyatira, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Tarsus, uh, Troas. These are all cities that we see in the New Testament that are referring to the same general area. Now, Colossae was a rather small and insignificant city by the time of Paul's writing. So when John writes the book of Revelation and he writes to seven churches, kind of symbolically representing the fullness of the church, you'll notice he doesn't write one to Colossae. They, were, they didn't make the top seven, okay? 
one, one scholar, J.B. Lightfoot, says this. He says, Colossae was the least important church to which any epistle of St. Paul was addressed. Now, in prior times, there had actually been a lot of travel through the city, and the city had been prominent at one point. And so this would likely, though, explain how there was so much religious influence and diversity that we see in the book. There was a lot of people who had been traveling through, and so they would bring a lot of religious practices with them. And that helps us understand the world that Colossae, the church in Colossae, was navigating, which we'll, we'll see. The church was likely composed mostly of Gentiles. Uh, the reason I think this is because Paul sees his ministry to the Colossian church as a part of his apostleship to the Gentiles, he says. He talks about his apostleship to the Gentiles and sees them as part of that. The way that Paul interacts with certain Jewish regulations uh, seems to indicate that they're mostly Gentiles. And then finally, the way that Paul describes their former manner of life like before Christ is much more fitting of a Gentile rather than a Jewish religious person in terms of some of the sinful activities they were engaged in. Now, Paul had never actually met this church, interestingly. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. And so Paul did not start this church like maybe some of his other uh, the churches that he writes to. Rather, we see in chapter 1, verse 7, he mentions this man named Epaphras, who was apparently the one who brought the gospel to Colossae, and he started the church there. He was the church planter in Colossae. Uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Paul, Paul also then describes Epaphras again as one of the members of the church there. He says he's one of you. Now, You'll remember from the book of Acts that Paul spent three years in Ephesus during his third missionary journey. And so some have theorized, we don't know this for sure, it's just a theory, but some have theorized that maybe Epaphras became a Christian while Paul was preaching in Ephesus, which was a city just nearby in Asia Minor, a city not far from Colossae. And then so the idea would be that after Epaphras, obviously he has to hear the gospel somehow. And so if he heard it from Paul there, then Epaphras would travel back to his own town, Colossae, share the gospel there, and plant the church. So that's one idea of how this church came into being. But regardless, Epaphras is the one who shares the gospel there. And Paul himself didn't actually know them personally. This is obviously, as we've been saying, it's an epistle or a letter it's always important to understand what type of genre we're reading in Scripture, just like there are different musical genres. You have rock, you have jazz, you have hip-hop. Some people would refer to country music as a genre. I think that's an oxymoron. But regardless, you have different types of music. You also have different types of writing, right? So we have different types of writing in Scripture. And here we're de dealing with a letter. Now, that impacts how we read the book. Uh, so, for example, we don't normally read other people's mail. Normally, in our country, that's a felony to open someone else's mail. But we are committing a felony today. We're reading someone else's mail. Okay? So, uh, just a story of this. Emily Spicall, was, she babysits for us sometimes. And uh, if you've ever driven to our house, maybe the first time you've driven to our house, sometimes people get confused because the house two doors over from us, two doors south, they're also the Millers and they have Miller on their house. And for whatever, so sometimes people go there and they get confused and 
But also, for whatever reason, this couple that lives at that house, I don't know why, but when they ship pack packages to themselves, they oftentimes put our address. And so it's not that the mail carrier is just getting mixed up because it says Miller and they drop it off at our house. We don't have Miller on our house. Uh, they literally send the package to our house. They have our address on it, and this happens repeatedly. And then the neighbor comes over and she's wondering why we have her package. And we're like, well, you put our address on it. But the first time it was really confusing because it says Miller. And we're like, well, that's us, but this isn't ours. And so it's kind of like we're dealing with someone else's mail. So this one time Emily was over and uh, we had gotten a package from the, na the neighbor's package. And uh, Emily was babysitting and the neighbor comes over and starts knocking on the window because that's a normal thing someone does instead of knocking on the door. She's knocking on the window. And Emily didn't know that this was a thing, so she's weirded out because she's like, well, do I, it says Miller, do I give you, you think this is your package? And put Emily in a bind, okay? Well, that's not what we're doing today. We're not awkwardly coming in and be like, well, should I open up this mail? This is a letter that was, of course, written to someone else. Okay, so we're intercepting mail here. It's written to the Colossians. It's written addressing a particular situation for them. But it's also written for us in the sense that it's a part of Scripture. But that affects how we read the letter. We need to read it as originally addressing them, not originally uh, written to us and having all the circumstances that we have. Uh, but we still want to listen in. We're eavesdropping, so to say. And, and we're only getting one side of the conversation. It's kind of like when that person in the, in the restaurant is taking a phone call and they're talking quite loudly and you, and you, hear, you hear just one side of the conversation, right? You, if they're on speakerphone, you'd be able to kind of hear both sides. You might be able to put it together a bit more. But when you just hear one side of the conversation, you have to use a little bit more caution in terms of understanding what's going on. So we're hearing one side of the conversation, but Paul is writing a letter, and so it has those traditional elements of a greeting, of a body, and a conclusion. He also mentions a lot of personal details, uh, expressing his deep care for them, um, and, and details regarding the audience and their situation. And as with the letters of the New Testament, they are what we might call occasional documents. In other words, they're written to address a particular situation, a particular occasion. The, me the message then is tailored very clearly to a particular reason why Paul wants to write to them. And this comes in, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 8, when we learn that Epaphras, the one who brought the gospel to Colossae and started the church there, Epaphras has now come and visited Paul, most likely in Rome, and Epaphras has filled Paul in on the church's situation. He's told them of their love in the Spirit. And it, in fact, it may be that Epaphras has traveled to Paul, specifically seeking Paul's help regarding some troubling circumstances that are now uh, going on in the church or are confronting and threatening the church. And so that brings us now to wanting to think about the false teaching. The book of Colossians gives a lot of attention to this false teaching and the book is tailored by Paul to address the false teaching. So we're going to take a bit longer time to unpack that. And I will say, too, I've put together all, like a whole bunch more introductory notes on Colossians that's in the um, announcements email or on the website. So if you're interested in, I'm giving you the flyover, but if you're interested in the full details, that stuff is available, too. But let's look at the false teaching. The first thing is that we see that the false teaching was a threat to sound faith. 
He says in chapter 2, verse 4, that it poses a threat of delusion, or in verse 8, of taking them captive. In chapter 2, 5 through 6, Paul sees it as a threat to their, quote-unquote, their good order and their firmness in faith. They're continuing in the faith as they received it, their stability in the faith. Chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says that those who hold to these false teachings, they use plausible arguments to try to persuade people. Okay, so it's a danger. The other thing is that it's a man-made system. He says that this false teaching is a man-made system. In chapter 2, verse 8, Paul characterizes this false teaching as philosophy, empty deceit, things that are, quote, according to human tradition, quote, according to the elemental spirits or the elementary principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Likewise, in chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, he says that this false teaching involves man-made regulations or rules, human teachings, man-made religious practices. Okay, so now what is all involved in this? It's a threat to the soundness of their faith. It's, it's a lot of man-made stuff. Well, what was some of the man-made stuff? What was it that they were actually promoting? And it's, it's very difficult to know for sure what this false teaching is. It's highly debated among scholars. But we can at least know this of it. And it's okay if we can't totally figure it out. Knowing this is enough to help us uh, understand the message of the book and apply it to our own lives. First, we see that there are some clear Jewish elements to the false teaching. As we'll see, they, the false teachers, they demanded that people follow certain Jewish regulations. Some interpreters also see potential pagan influences as well, maybe mixed in. Okay? So now in terms of the regulations, we see in chapter 2, verse 16, that the false teachers sought to impose certain rules regarding what food and drink one was allowed to consume. In chapter 2, verse 20, Paul describes the regulations with this slogan of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that are perishable like food and such, probably. Uh, these folks also required observance of the Sabbath and other religious holy days. Paul mentions circumcision throughout the book, and so that may indicate that the false teaching was requiring circumcision. In chapter 2, verse 23, we see that they practiced severity to the body or, to the body or asceticism, like treating their body harshly. Um, they advocated that. In chapter 2, verse 18, they claim to experience visions. Uh, we see in chapter 2, verse 18 as well, that they worship angels. And this would then make sense of why throughout the book, Paul goes out of his way to mention Christ's superiority and defeat of angelic beings. What he refers to in the book as thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. That's referring to angelic beings. And Jesus is superior to that, which would make sense if the false teachers are worshiping angels. And then in chapter 1, we also see that Paul will make a lot of mention of, of words like knowledge and understanding and wisdom. And so it seems likely that Paul is already addressing the false teaching at this point, and that he's raising these matters, uh, likely, very likely at least, that the false teaching is holding up some sort of alternative knowledge, that you need this sort of knowledge in order to be super spiritual. And so maybe this knowledge was connected to the visions that they were having, uh, that they were saying they had new revelations in these visions that were needed beyond the original gospel that they had received. And, and we see the rationale of why the false teachers were promoting this false teaching. We see that in chapter 2, verse 23, 
where Paul says that these man-made practices have an appearance of wisdom. They look like they're going to help you out. They're, 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 they're trying to, uh, to, to, to help you uh, stop your flesh, it says. But he says it actually has no value in stopping the flesh. It has no value in, in killing the sin, sinful tendencies that we experience. So the false teaching, though, would be promoting these things as trying to, a way of trying to reach a higher spiritual maturity. And we see the effect that it had on the church. In chapter 2, verse 16, we see that those who held to this false teaching were passing judgment on believers. Paul says, don't let them pass judgment on you. Uh, presumably, they were passing judgment on them for, because the Colossian believers weren't following their rules and their practices, and so they were seen as uh, being inferior. In chapter 2, verse 18, he says that they were trying to disqualify the believers. And likely the Colossian Christians were being judged as spiritually inferior, lacking something because they weren't following these particular rules or religious observances. Additionally, these practices may have had the effect of creating divisions within the church, like a caste system between the truly spiritual who observed these religious rules and the inferior spiritually who abstained from the rules. And maybe especially these rules and these divisions landed along the lines of Jew versus Gentile. Because this would explain why in chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says that in Christ there is no Jew or Greek circumcised or uncircumcised. Why does he address those groups? It may be because of the false teaching. And so he says and said that Christ is all and in all. He's all that you need and he's all for all of us, Jew and Greek. This also may be why Paul stresses his apostleship to the Gentiles in chapter 1, 24 to 2, 5. Uh, because he says that Christ has appointed him to proclaim the mystery that Christ now indwells the Gentiles. He may be bringing it up because the Gentiles are being sort of uh, disenfranchised or left to the side spiritually. And it may also be why in chapter 2, 11 through 13, Paul emphasizes that Christ provides believers the true circumcision over against a mere physical circumcision. Again, the false teaching may be creating something of a division among Christians based on Jewishness or the willingness of Gentiles to take on certain Jewish requirements. And so, with all of that in view, what is Paul's aim in writing the letter to the Colossians? It's this. He wants them to continue in faith in Christ. Continue in faith in Christ according to how they originally heard Christ and received him not according to false alternatives. How? Being fully assured that they have all they need for maturity in Jesus, not those practices, not those false ideas. He says he writes so that they would continue in faith in Christ according to how they originally heard and received him, not according to the false alternatives. Why? Because they can be fully assured that they have all they need for spiritual maturity in Jesus. They don't need those other things. And so at this point, I want us to actually read through the letter. It's a pretty short letter, so we can do so in a timely fashion. And I want to try to help you see that argument. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to try to provide some really basic, uh, I'm going to point some things out as we go to help you see this 
argument. And Joby is, as we go through, uh, go through, he's going to move through the slides to help you see an outline of the book, if that's helpful. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. So that's your traditional greeting. He introduces himself and his audience. And now we get the traditional, what they would have had in that day, a traditional thanksgiving and prayer to begin the letter. And here he wants to thank God. Notice this. He wants to thank God that they have received the gospel. They've heard the gospel and they've received it and it's bearing fruit in them. He's thanking God that they have done that and he's going to pray that it continues to bear the fruit in them. Verse 3, we, thank, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, that is the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed it's come to the whole world and it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and you understood the grace of God and truth, the gospel, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. You heard the gospel from Epaphras, and it's bearing fruit. That's what you need, the gospel. Now we've heard why he thanks God in his prayers. Now let's read what he prays for them, verse 9 and following. And so from the day that we heard, that you heard, that we heard that you heard the gospel, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, just as the gospel bears fruit, he said earlier, now it's going to bear fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God among you, that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. You are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom, this son, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so they have what they need in the gospel of Christ. And now, as he's mentioned Christ, who's qualified them, he's going to lift up that Christ and show us who that Christ is, the Christ who is all-sufficient. This son is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn. He's the preeminent one. He's first among all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through this Son and for the Son. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Not only is he preeminent over creation, but now we're going to see he's preeminent over the new creation. Because he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, the preeminent one out of all those who will be raised from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in the Son all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
and through the Son to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. He has accomplished this reconciliation, and now Paul is going to say in verse 21 through 23 that this reconciliation has come to you as well, if you are those who persevere in the faith. So verse 21, And you, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind to God, you were doing evil deeds, Jesus has now reconciled you to God in his own body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And this is true of you if you are those who indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, like going after some false teaching, but stable, holding to the gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And now that Paul has mentioned that he is a minister of this gospel which is being proclaimed to them, he wants to talk about how, he wants to unpack what it means for him to be a minister of the gospel, particularly a minister for their sake. So Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I'm participating in his own afflictions for the sake of Christ's body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship, the commission from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. This mystery, this secret that was hidden for all ages and generations, but now is revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is that mystery? It's Christ in you, the very hope of glory. Him, Jesus, we proclaim We warn everyone, we teach everyone with all wisdom for this goal, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, I struggle with all the energy that God powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great I struggle, how great of a struggle I have for you and and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love in order to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible arguments otherwise. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit. I'm rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I'm ministering, I'm laboring for you, Paul says, so that you can be firm in your faith, not deluded from some other gospel, something that detracts from the gospel. And now he goes on to address that false teaching that he has mentioned. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, just as we began the book, as the gospel came to you and you believed it and it's bearing fruit among you, just as you received it from Epaphras, so Walk in Jesus, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, just as you originally received it from Epaphras, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Christ the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have been filled in that Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Jesus also, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, 
by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Jesus in baptism through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who are dead in your trespasses and this uncircumcision of your flesh, God has now made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling this record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands against us. In this, he set aside because he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You have all you need. Don't go after this false teaching. Look who Jesus is. He is the true circumcision. He is the one who has brought you from death to life. He's the one who has given you forgiveness of sins. And so we continue on as he addresses the false teaching. You'll notice that he uses this, this word therefore in verse 6. And now he uses the word therefore again in verse 16. He's going to use the word therefore again in chapter 3 verse 1. Although the ESV translate it, translates it differently. He's going to use it again in chapter 3, verse 5, and he's going to use it again in chapter 3, verse 12. And this marks off some of these sections. But back to verse 16. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. He said, let no one delude you. He said, let no one take you captive. Now he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come. They were anticipating Jesus, but the substance actually belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in details about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. And now he gives two if clauses. He says, if you have died with Christ, and he'll eventually say in chapter 3, verse 1, if you have been raised with Christ. So first of all, why avoid the false teaching? Because if you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to such regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch. Referring to things that, are, that all perish as they are used. Things that are according to human precepts and teachings. Yes, they have an, indeed an appearance of wisdom in, promote, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are in fact of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So he's first said, if you've been raised with Christ, or if you've died with Christ, now he's going to say, well, if you've raised with Christ as well. So if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, the one seated at the right hand of God. So set your minds on things that are above where Christ is, not on those things that are on earth like all those regulations. For you have died and your life is hidden. It's bound up with Christ and God. And so when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And now he, in, in chapter 3, 5 uh, through to verse 17, he's going to make two contrasts. He's going to talk about, okay, so we've, we, we are, we're going to avoid the false teaching. That's not where true maturity is found. Well, now, where is true maturity found? It's in Christ, and this is what it looks like. He's going to talk about putting certain things off, and he's going to talk about putting certain things on. So here's true maturity in contrast to the false teaching. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, or the new humanity, the new man, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, in this renewed new humanity, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but in this new humanity, Christ is all, and he is all to all. So if we were putting off those things, this is what we're supposed to put on instead. Put on as God's chosen people, those who are holy and beloved by God, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which, indeed, you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ, the gospel that you originally received, let that, that word of Christ dwell in you richly as a church, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he's addressed the false teaching. He said this is what true maturity looks like. And now, as is common of letters, they would also address, in that day, they would also address the household. And so not only does he want to see transformation happen within the church of putting off these practices and putting on other practices, but now he wants to see transformation happen in the home. And so what does it look like to be in Christ in the home? It's this, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters or lords, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, or that is earthly lords, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a Lord in heaven. And then he closes the book. Just as he began with all this mention of prayer and his burden for ministry and to see the gospel go forth, so as he closes the book, he brings up again the topic of prayer and the burden to see the gospel go forward and his fellow laborers who are striving and struggling for that gospel for the very same reason that he is. Continue steadfastly in prayer, church. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word of the gospel 
to, to, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. You all walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose. As he brings you the letter, I'm sending the letter along with him. I'm sending you that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, I'm also sending Onesimus, this one from the, uh, the runaway slave from Philemon. I'm sending you Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. He's a member of your church. And, and, and these guys, they're going to tell you everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, he greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who we call Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision, my, my Jewish fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, that's the one that we heard of earlier, the one who, who started the church, he is one of you. He's a servant of Christ Jesus. He greets you as well. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for, for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, these nearby cities. Luke, the one who wrote the Gospel of Luke and Acts, the beloved physician, he greets you as does Demas. <clears throat> Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church that meets in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodicea and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, am now writing this greeting, this sending with my very own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And so hopefully as we've read through that whole book and I was able to kind of help you get a sense of it as well, you are able to already pick up the argument of the book, where the book is heading, how it all fits together. I think we can kind of get a summary if I was to plop into one verse. I know I've been kind of all over the place referencing things, but if I can point you to chapter 3, verse 11, the very last line of chapter 3, verse 11, I think this really well summarizes the content of the book, the material that Paul is presenting to us. He says this, he says, But Christ is all and in all. In other words, Christ is all that they need. Nothing else is needed. Christ is all. He's all that matters. And he's in all. In other words, he is all for all of them. There's no distinctions based on additional religious criteria. Or sometimes when we're studying a book, a helpful thing to do if you come to text group uh, on, before the service or on Mondays, uh, we try to examine uh, different techniques of how to study scripture well, and one of those is looking at the top and the tail, the beginning of the book and the ending of the book. Are there any, uh, any uh, repeated themes that we see from the very beginning of the book and the end of the book? And that will help us know what Paul's main burden is. And we actually do see uh, a repetition between the beginning and the end. And so look at chapter 1, verse 28 with me. This is where Paul's talking about his ministry to them. 
he says, him, that is Christ, we proclaim. This, this is my ministry. I'm proclaiming Jesus. That involves warning everyone on the one hand and teaching everyone on the other hand with all wisdom. Why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Or you might say, as some translations say, complete in Christ. You've reached full spiritual, spiritual maturity in Christ. You have everything you need for maturity in Christ. And I labor so that that can happen. Or look down then at chapter uh, 2, verse 2 in the same section. He says, I, I, I want your hearts to be encouraged, knit together in love. Why? In order to reach all the riches of the full assurance of these things. I want you to be fully assured that you have what you need to be mature in Christ. I am preaching so that you would be fully mature in Christ. Paul is concerned for the maturity. This is why he labors, why he and others toil. This is why he thanks God at the beginning of the book that the gospel has reached them. It's bearing fruit. They are maturing as the body is connected to the head who nourishes them. But Paul also then wants them to be fully assured that continuing in the faith is exactly what they need to do. He wants them to be fully assured that they have indeed all that they need for maturity in this Jesus, to reach this maturity. And so we see that as well at the end of the book when he's talking about Epaphras, the laborer who's in their church. He says in chapter 4, verse 12, describing Epaphras, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, and he's always struggling. Same word that Paul used for his own struggle for the church. As Paul is struggling, so Epaphras is struggling in his prayers as well, so that, notice this, they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. And so I think that's really the burden of this book. He wants them to know that Christ is in all. Christ is all and he's in all. He's everything they need to be mature. He wants them to be fully assured of that so that they avoid the false teaching, any false alternative to spiritual maturity and fulfillment. And so you might see the whole book really summarized in chapter 2, verse 6. His argument, what he wants them to do, how he wants them to respond, he says this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, just as you received him when Epaphras came to you and he told you the gospel, and he, he, remember we read, he, they, they heard the gospel, they heard, they, they heard what Epaphras taught. So just as you received that Jesus, continue, so walk in him. Don't go, don't go south. Don't go some other direction after this false teaching. Be rooted and built up in him, established in your faith, just as you were taught. Continue in the faith. Continue in trusting in Christ, just as you originally heard about and received him. And so we might summarize the whole book this way. The, the, the message that wraps the entire book together is this. Continue in your faith in Christ, avoiding false alternatives, fully assured that you have everything you need for maturity in him. Continue in your faith in Christ, avoiding all false alternatives, because you're fully assured that you have everything you need for maturity in Christ. And so we've titled the series, Complete in Christ. You are complete in Christ because Christ is sufficient. He's all you need for maturity in him. And so in closing... As we think about uh, how this message comes to bear on our own lives, 
I want to ask three questions. First, why do we struggle to believe this and live this out? What are the reasons we need a book like Colossians? And what are things that we can hope to gain from this particular book? So first of all, why do we struggle to believe this message and live it out? Well, I think we can start to enter into the thinking that the gospel is somehow inadequate. When we come to believe the gospel, we know we're saved by the gospel, but it's really easy to start thinking, yes, but there must be something more to that. The gospel is sort of basic. It's elementary. And we start to think, yes, but I need something more. I need some other teaching, something else, some other practices to supplement the gospel. We're also very performance-based. It's sort of deep-seated within us as humans to want to think that we need to perform in order to relate to God, in order to earn his favor. A performance-based religion is deep-seated within us. And so we have the impulse to want to perform, to want to try to earn God's favor. And so the idea of receiving grace through Christ alone, through faith alone, it runs against the grain of who we are. Even as believers, even as people who know otherwise, we seep into that sort of thinking. And I think we also want something tangible. I think one of the reasons that the Colossians would have been susceptible to these sort of extra practices, not only because they start to feel, well, maybe the gospel isn't adequate, maybe I need these things as well, or, or not only because they're, we have a tendency to works-based religion, so they see these as works they can do. The other thing, too, is that, is that I think sometimes we just want something tangible, something, some clear action, like give me a list, give me a to-do list, and give me some clear action I can do where I know that if I do this, it will output a clear spiritual gain. We want to be able to control our spiritual growth, in other words. If I do X, it'll produce Y. And so I think we need this message because we do struggle to hear it. Why are, uh, or what sort of, what are the reasons then that we need a book like, like the letter to the Colossians? It's because we too are tempted to fall away from the faith. The, the, the challenge that they faced of, of, of being uh, potentially pulled away into this false teaching isn't a unique challenge to them. It's also a challenge that we face today, being tempted by things that would claim to offer something better than the Christian faith. And so what are things that we can hope to gain from this particular book? Well, first, I think we can gain uh, a prayerful burden and sacrificial dedication for the sake of the gospel's advancement and our fellow believers' growth and maturity. We see that, that that's how Paul begins the letter and how he closes the letter, with this prayer and this burden. He's even saying, I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice in my affliction for you because I want to see the gospel go forward. He says, pray that the gospel would advance. I've seen the gospel advancing. It's bearing fruit across the world. It's bearing fruit in this church, he says, to the Colossians. And he says, I'm willing to suffer for that. I rejoice that I get to participate in Christ's suffering. And he says, pray for it. He talks about Epaphras laboring in prayer, which is an interesting way to describe prayer. And I think we can learn of something of that too, this prayer, prayerful burden, a sacrificial dedication, even if it means that we suffer so that we can see the gospel advance and so we can see our fellow believers grow, that we're so burdened by that, seeing one another grow even in our own church. Also, we see in the book of Colossians that the Christian life involves radical transformation. I think we can so emphasize that we are justified even as being sinners, 
that Christ, of course, justifies us not on the basis of anything we do, but then we can downplay the fact that those whom he justifies, not on any basis of what they do, he nonetheless radically transforms. He changes them. We ought to be new people. He says in chapter 3 that you have put to death the old humanity. The, the, the old you is dead. It's in the grave. And you have risen now in Jesus as a part of the new creation. You are a new person in him. You are, a new, you are part of the new humanity. And he wants to see that transformation. Uh, the first sort of context is within the church. A lot of those commands have to do with how we treat one another in the church, you'll notice. The other one that he mentions is in the home. There ought to be radical transformation in how husbands and wives and children and such treat each other. If there's not a radical transformation in those contexts, it's not indicative of what the gospel actually produces. Also, he sees that, I think a book like this helps us see that our lives ought to be centered around Jesus. Particularly the passage that Sam read, which I think uh, is really the heart of the book, that Sam's going to preach that passage in two weeks. Um, he, he, he lifts up who Jesus is. He sort of peels back the curtain, and we're able to see like Jesus, this Jesus who, who walked among, among them, who they, who they saw, who they heard, who they touched, not necessarily the Colossians per se, but the early Christians. You know, he, this human being, he pulls back the curtains and he says, the fullness of the deity dwells in him bodily. He's the image of the invisible God. The, the God that we can't see, Jesus makes him known. What God is, he is. He's the one who created all things. He, he, he even created all the dominions and rulers and authorities. He, he's over all angelic beings. Is there anything in creation he didn't create? It's, it's all of creation, whether heaven or on earth. So not only does he have authority over creation, he's also the one who sustains creation. There's not a single molecule that's off doing its own thing right now. But Jesus is the one who controls every molecule in this universe, causing it to continue to exist. He, he's not only the uh, preeminent over creation, he's preeminent over new creation. He's the head of a church, a new humanity. He's the first person to rise from the dead. He's, he's sort of beginning the resurrection parade that we're all going to follow in one day. I mean, he peels back the curtain to help us see who this Jesus really is. He's the center of the universe. All history is a footnote to what Jesus is and what Jesus is doing. All things were created by him and for him. And so if we, if we, as we go through this book, if, if, if Jesus is simply kind of on the margins of our lives, Maybe we view our, our involvement in church as just sort of like, yeah, it's good, but it's just kind of like there in the margins. It doesn't fit Paul's perspective. If the way we organize our family life is like religion, like our faith in Christ is just kind of on the margins, it doesn't reflect what Paul's perspective. If, if our career or education or what have you, if that's the center, it doesn't fit Paul's perspective. Jesus is at the center. You want to peel back the universe. The person you're going to see at the center of it all is Jesus. And if he's at the center of the universe, he ought to be the center of our lives as well. And I'm excited for this, for this series. You know, we've talked about our, why we struggle to believe it. We've talked about, you know, what, what's, what do we need in a book like this and what do we hope to gain out of it. One of the things that we can gain out of it is 10 weeks just thinking about Jesus. It gives us 10 weeks to have explicit attention on Jesus. And we need to constantly keep Jesus and the gospel at the center because we're prone to drift. As, this, as the hymn says, we're prone to wander, Lord, I fear it. 
And studying Colossians gives us an opportunity to refocus our attention once again on Jesus. To be captivated by this Jesus, who is everything we need. And it's by being captivated by Jesus, by perceiving who he really is, by perceiving his greatness, by treasuring him above everything else, it's by doing that that ultimately will be fueled to live these transformed lives that Paul is talking about. I was watching a documentary, because I'm a nerd and I like to, I get curious about things and I just watch random documentaries on stuff. Anne's always making fun of me. So I was watching something and uh, I don't remember what the documentary was about, but at one point they talked about astronauts going to outer space. And, um, and for a while we didn't even have a picture, when they went to the moon, we didn't even have a picture of Earth for a while which is interesting to think about, like pictures are so ubiquitous now we have phones and take pictures of everything. You'd be like, if one of us went to the moon, we'd be taking selfies, like first thing, right? But I suppose they probably had to develop a camera that could take a picture even with lack of uh, as much gravity and all that. But anyways, eventually they were like, we need to get a picture of the moon or the picture of the earth from the moon. And so, but one of the things that astronauts will often talk about is this thing called the, that they've termed the overview effect, which is just the, the effect that it has on an astronaut when they go into outer space and they're able to actually see the world as the Earth in one whole view, one whole viewpoint. The vision of the Earth forever changes them, they say. that They, they, they are able to see the world without national boundaries, or we oftentimes think of nations. You look at the Earth, you don't see national boundaries. It, it, it often, some people say that even our ability to get pictures of the Earth from space is one of the things that spurred on environmental concerns. Um, we see the con you're able to kind of just immediately perceive the connectedness of all humanity. You start to kind of put in perspective the pettiness of our different disputes and our conflicts, and even just being overwhelmed with the Earth's beauty, had this galactic perspective. And so these astronauts talk about how they're forever changed and they can never sort of take away that perspective once they've seen it. And I think in a similar way, when you encounter Christ and we have the opportunity to do so in the book of Colossians, we ought to never be the same. We now have a bit of a galactic perspective where we see Jesus at the center of the universe, the one who created all things, sustained all things, and is remaking all things. And as Christians, when we gain an apprehension of who Jesus really is, it ought to change us. If it doesn't change us, I'm not sure we've actually seen him for who he really is. And so we ought to continue in our faith in Christ then. The message for us is, is today as well is that we ought to continue in our faith in Christ, fully assured that we have everything we need for maturity in this Christ. Because he is the one who has won it for us in his death and resurrection. As we read in the book, he has nailed the record of debt, our record of debt in sins. He's nailed that to the cross. When he was nailed to the cross, our sins were nailed to the cross. And when he was buried, they stayed in the grave. That he is the one who has qualified us to participate in this kingdom. He has qualified us through his redeeming death that, that bought us from our enslavement from sin. And he is the one that when we're united to him by faith, we have our old self has been buried with him in the grave. And when he came out of the grave, we came out of the grave with him as new people. And so we have everything we need to continue trusting in Jesus because he has everything for us. And the Lord's Supper is a visual pledge of this union we have with Jesus. 
Where is everything we need? It's in Jesus. And the Lord's Supper is a way of, uh, it symbolizes the body and blood of Christ. And as we ingest it, it's us saying we are united to him in his death for us, for those who are trusting in him. It's as, as Paul has the burden that we would be fully, fully assured that we have everything for maturity in Christ. The Lord's Supper is God's way of wanting to fully assure us that we have everything we need for maturity and salvation. It's his promise to us for those who receive it by faith. 